Now, death is the grim reality that we all face, isn't it? A great disruption, the end of life. Uh, that's the, the uncomfortable truth. And not just for ourselves, which is confronting enough, uh, but we face this reality of death for those that we care about. Uh, and I'm conscious that um, many people here this morning uh, will have faced this reality far more personally and directly than I have. I'm still just young enough uh, and, and really fortunate enough uh, to have been spared dealing with the reality of death within my immediate family and my, my close friends up until now. And I know that's not true for all of us. Um, but even I have been confronted with the death of grandparents and aunts and uncles and family friends. Death brings pain, grief and confusion for those of us who are left behind. Uh, it can breed fear as we contemplate the prospect of death, uh, again, both for ourselves and for those that we care about. Now, our world, particularly our Western world, doesn't really know what to do with this pain, confusion, and fear. Uh, we largely live in denial of the reality of death in our culture. Uh, we cling on to youth. We try to extend our lives. Uh, we hide people away as they come close to death. And I think euthanasia is, ironically, an extension of this denial, uh, ignoring the reality as long as possible and then short-circuiting it on our own terms. And so we're all naturally affected by these attitudes. Uh, we're, we're part of this culture. We're, we are, we're caught off guard by death, really. We're confused. We're, we're horrified. We're, we're grieved by it. And in one sense, that's as it should be, right? Death is disturbing. It's an evil intrusion into God's good world. It's, it's our greatest enemy, and it's a pointer to the profound brokenness of this world. But at the same time, the Christian hope confronts and transforms the reality of death. At the heart of the Christian faith is hope in the face of death. And it, it changes how we experience the death of fellow believers and how we face it ourselves. As you probably noticed in the Bible reading, this is what our short passage in chapter 4 of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians is all about. After his exhortation in verses 1 to 12 that we looked at last week to, to continue living in a way that pleases the Lord and to do so more and more, he now turns to address an important issue that he thinks there is some confusion about. So in verse 13, Paul begins, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Paul has become unaware, uh, has become aware, uh, perhaps through what Timothy has shared uh, with Paul after, you know, after he, he visited the Thessalonians and then he returned uh, and shared news with them. Paul's perhaps become aware that there is some confusion about their fellow believers who have died. And what's this confusion? Well, from the answer that he goes on to give in verses 14 to 17, it seems that there's some concern that the believers who have died before Jesus has returned might miss out in some sense. Uh, Paul's core point that we, we see is essentially there's absolutely no reason for concern. Those who have died will rise at the return of Jesus before anything happens to the rest of us. They won't miss out on anything. Now, why were they confused or concerned about this? Well, we don't really know. Uh, we don't really even know exactly what they were worried about. We're just guessing from what Paul says. Now, given that this is uh, 
this letter, it's one of Paul's first letters, very early on in his ministry, some people have wondered if perhaps the Thessalonians, maybe along with Paul himself, presumed that Jesus would return very soon, within their generation. And perhaps they hadn't really contemplated that some of them might actually die before Jesus returns. And, and now they're not sure. What, what does that mean for, for their participation in the kingdom of God that Jesus will establish when he returns? And whatever the case, Paul provides a very clear answer. Verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then he goes on to back this up by reflecting the the key points that we find in many places through the New Testament. At the command of God, marked by the voice of the archangel and a blast of a trumpet of God, Jesus will appear for all to see. The dead will be raised. The rest are transformed so that together all God's people will welcome and be with their Lord and Saviour. Now, it's unlikely that we share the exact same confusion or concerns of the Thessalonians. Uh, I don't think many of us, 2,000 years later, are worried that Christians who die before Jesus returns might miss out on something important that the generation that is still alive at the time will experience. Uh, I don't think that's exactly our concern. But I think what Paul says here to address their concerns speaks powerfully to our own confusion and grief in the face of death. Whether or not we share their confusion or concerns, we are reminded that we're all living for a reality beyond life in this world as we know it. We live and we die, either way, in hope of the coming kingdom. And that's really the ultimate point Paul is making. You see, Paul's real concern or his aim in bringing this clarity about what will happen in the end is expressed in the first and last verses. He doesn't want them to be uninformed. He wants to bring this clarity and this confidence. Why? So that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. The pagan world, much like our own secular world today, saw death as final. There was no hope in the face of death. And Paul's saying, that's not true for us. We have hope, a hope that overcomes death. And so we don't grieve in the same way. Now, of course, we still grieve, don't we? Paul's not saying that death doesn't bring any disruption or confusion or, or sadness. It still hurts. It still confronts us with the outworking of sin and evil in this world. But we don't grieve as those with no hope. Instead, we grieve as people with hope, which is really quite different, isn't it? The fact that Paul consistently describes death as having fallen asleep in this passage, it highlights uh, this point that he's making. The Christian hope changes the nature of death itself. I remember at the funeral of an uncle of mine many years ago, uh, my cousin shared with me afterwards that he found the Christian focus of the funeral frustrating for him personally. You see, my uncle was a Christian, and so was and is his wife, and a number of our extended family. But my cousin wasn't, uh, still isn't. He's a great guy, lots of respect for him. Uh, but he's concluded that the stories from the Bible, they are just stories. And so he was grieving for his uncle without hope that there was anything else, that there was anything more for him, any further relationship. Death was the end. And that meant he felt a disconnect from the content and the tone of the service. 
uh, the funeral service, despite reflecting the sadness and grief we all felt, was also filled with messages of hope, as a Christian funeral should be. For many of us there, it wasn't simply a time of grief, it was a time of encouragement, a time of hope and of thanksgiving even. For those of us who believed, our hope in the face of death transformed how we expressed our grief. Now, it's not because we didn't care and we weren't um, touched by what had happened. It's because we were confident that we would be reunited with him in the presence of our Lord. In the most important sense for us, he wasn't actually dead. As Paul says, he was asleep. And Paul wants us to encourage each other in light of this hope, this transforming hope. At the end of the passage, having outlined the reasons for our hope in the face of death, he exhorts his readers, therefore encourage one another, encourage each other with these words. Paul wants the truths of this passage to take deep root in our hearts and minds and to change the way that we face the reality of death. Death will continue to confront us. It will continue to tempt us to despair. And so we're to continue to encourage one another with the reality of our hope in Christ. That's the outcome that Paul's looking for in this passage. Uh, A community encouraging each other to live in hope of the resurrection at the return of Christ. And to do so more and more as we face the grim reality of death in our midst. So Paul's point in this passage is really quite simple. Don't be concerned about believers who have died. Of course, grieve, be be sad, but don't be concerned about them. They won't miss out on anything. We'll all rise to meet Jesus together. So don't grieve like those with no hope. Keep encouraging each other. And it's important for us to appreciate that this is the point that Paul is actually making because we can latch on to some of the things that Paul says here and perhaps make more of these details than we should. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean there's nothing to learn from the details. We just need to remember the point Paul is actually making and make sure we read the details in the context of the whole New Testament, the context of the whole Bible, really. So we're going to step through verses 14 to 17, uh, the centre of this passage, a little more closely, and consider what Paul says we are actually waiting for. Uh, What is the nature of this transforming hope? And the key thing to appreciate is that what Paul is describing here It's not a a special particular part of a long series, a complex series of events. Rather, Paul is describing the great hope of God's people, the establishment of the kingdom of God through the revelation or the appearing of the risen Lord Jesus as the true Lord of all. And at the heart of this promise is the hope of the resurrection of God's people. Uh, In fact, the transformation of the whole of, of heaven and earth to share in the new resurrection reality that is already present in Jesus. That's what Paul is describing here. So first of all, note where Paul starts, the foundation for what he goes on to say. In verse 14, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe. The death and resurrection of Jesus himself is the foundation for everything else that he says in his death. Jesus purchased our forgiveness and our redemption, and in his resurrection, he makes available a new life, a new reality. Through the resurrection of Jesus, God's God's great future, a world of justice and peace that's free from sin, free from decay, this great future has become a reality in the resurrection of Jesus. 
Jesus is the first fruits of this coming kingdom, as Paul says elsewhere. He is the promise of new life for all who belong to him. So whatever happened to Jesus is what will happen to those who trust in him, whether or not they've died or, or fallen asleep while we wait. And so Paul explains at the end of verse 16, with the appearing of Jesus from heaven, the dead in Christ will rise first. This promise of resurrection is the primary reality that, Paul, that is being described here. And we need to understand what else Paul says in light of it. So, for example, in verse 14, um, Paul says that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. Um, where is God bringing them from? What, is it, what does it mean to bring them? Well, the key is that it's the same reality that he's describing in verse 16 when he says that the dead in Christ will rise first. Bringing them with Jesus means raising them from the dead. He describes it as bringing them with Jesus because when we become followers of Jesus, our true identity is now bound up in him. Whether or not we've died in the meantime, by faith, our lives are now hidden in Christ. And who we truly are will only be revealed when Jesus is revealed in all his glory. Um, so then our new selves, our resurrected, physical, and yet imperishable, sinless selves, well, they'll be revealed along with Jesus, just like him. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul writes, uh, in chapter 3, verse 2, "...set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died." And he's not writing to people who have physically died. He's writing to people who are still, still left, still alive, but they've put their faith in Jesus. And he says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, for some people, those who are still alive when Jesus returns, this manifestation, this appearing, that will be a transformation of their existing bodies and their experience of reality. But for the many who have died waiting for this moment in history, it will be a reappearing, a, a reconstitution of their person with a new body in the likeness of Christ, a new imperishable body. So the Christian hope is a new transformed bodily existence in a renewed world, the kingdom of God. It's not to escape this world as a disembodied spirit. You will be you uh, in God's world, but a new you, in a new world. And uh, whether or not you die waiting for this you to be revealed makes no difference. So you're not the molecules that make up your body at this exact point in time, are you? Uh, you're something else. But neither are you just an immaterial soul, as if your body doesn't matter. You are a creature made in the image of God, known by God, and you will be remade in the full, imperishable image of God in all your glory on that final day. Paul describes these same realities in 1 Corinthians 15. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. 
when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Now, did you notice the same ordering of events from our passage in 1 Thessalonians? For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And in Corinthians, uh, Paul has a different focus, a different issue he's addressing, the need for substantial transformation of our fleshly bodies to participate in the eternal kingdom, um, whereas there's a different concern in 1 Thessalonians. But the, he points to the same reality, doesn't he, to address the different issues. So in 1 Thessalonians, Paul describes those who remain being caught up together to meet the Lord after the dead are raised, rather than being transformed. But you can see he's describing the same great reality, isn't he? The resurrection and the transformation of God's people to participate in the kingdom of God. And at this point, I think it's worth pointing out, in case there is any confusion, that in this passage, Paul really is describing this great day of the Lord. Uh, he's talking about the day that God has promised to bring judgment and salvation, to establish his kingdom on earth as in heaven. Uh, in fact, to bring heaven and earth together again. And this is in contrast, I think, to the idea that Paul is talking about a secret rapture of God's people before seven years of terrible suffering is unleashed on earth. See, there's a whole uh, complex of teaching around the end times that arose uh, in America in the 19th century, which has particularly captivated the attention of American evangelicalism, which wasn't really part of the historical Christian faith. And part of this pack package of teaching is the idea that the coming of the Lord that Paul speaks about here is actually a secret hidden event. Uh, and he's coming to snatch Christians out of the world and take them back to heaven uh, and to, to spare them terrible suffering that's about to be unleashed. But those ideas, I think, have to be read into this passage, and they don't really fit with the rest of the New Testament. They don't, I don't think, even really fit with the passage itself. Like the rest of the New Testament, this passage describes a great event that captures the attention of the world. A loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and no less than the resurrection of the dead. So Paul's teaching here, it's reflecting what Jesus himself taught his disciples about his coming. Uh, and Jesus is very clear that his appearing, his coming, it won't be a secret event. It will capture the attention of all peoples on earth. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, we read from Jesus, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Again, notice the parallels. Jesus appears, coming on the clouds of heaven. There's a loud trumpet call. His people are gathered to him. And this is a great cosmic event. All people see the coming of the Son of Man, either mourning their coming judgment because they haven't bowed the knee, they haven't trusted and waited for this day, or celebrating the salvation that they have been waiting for. So why does Paul talk about all of us being caught up together in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air in this passage? Why not just use the same language as other passages of being changed or transformed to be like Jesus? If he's not talking about a different reality. Well, I think it's because of the burden that Paul has in this passage to emphasize 
that those who have died already will not miss out on anything. They will be raised first, and then together we will meet the Lord and welcome his rule. You see, the phrase to meet, it's kind of a technical phrase. Uh, It's typically used to refer to people from a certain place going out to formally welcome and greet visiting people, um, usually visiting important people, uh, before returning to them um, inside the house or inside the city. Uh, It's used that way a few other times in the Bible. And the Thessalonians would have been familiar with the idea of of going out, uh, for example, for a meeting of the representatives of the emperor of Rome. Now, Paul doesn't talk about God's people going to meet Jesus in the air anywhere else, but it fits with the idea that, well, we're citizens of heaven. We're waiting for our Lord and Saviour from heaven, coming to reveal his lordship and establish his kingdom, coming to earth to do that. And so we meet him outside the gates, so to speak. We meet him in the air. Uh, Conceptually, that's the space that we go out to meet our Lord coming from heaven to earth. Uh, And Paul's saying that those who've died, they won't even miss out on this moment. We'll share in it together and we'll welcome our Lord together and then we'll be with him together forever. Now, we could go on looking at more and more passages of the Bible, uh, all describing the reality that we're looking forward to in different ways and seeing the parallels with our passage in 1 Thessalonians. The point is that the Bible actually describes a fairly simple and straightforward reality about the end. But it does that over and over again through lots of different pictures. See, I think some people view the teaching of the Bible about the end times kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, Lots of little pieces that all portray... Got a nice little picture of a jigsaw puzzle here. There we go. Lots of different pieces that all portray something different and that all need to be carefully fit together to form the whole picture. That's how some people treat the the various bits of teaching in the Bible about the end times. But I think a better, more accurate way to read the Bible is to see the biblical teaching about the return of Jesus and about the coming kingdom of God more like an art gallery. Walls and walls of pictures, all depicting one big reality in different ways, in different styles, genres, different perspectives. Now, some of the pictures look very similar, Uh, and some of them have a very different feel. Some books, like Revelation, have a whole wing of the gallery all to themselves, (laughs) with lots and lots of pictures uh, uh, all of their own. But they're all portraying the great victory of God over evil, the salvation of his people, the establishment of his good rule through the appearing of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the heart of that hope, the consistent theme through all these pictures is the promise of resurrection of eternal life in the presence of Jesus in a renewed world. And as we see in our passage today, the consistent purpose of these pictures is to inspire hope. God has promised a good future. He has promised justice and salvation for those who will put their hope in him. God's good future is coming. It will undo everything that has gone wrong. And, you know, as that most beautiful of pictures in the Bible puts it, that very special painting in the gallery of the Revelation wing of the gallery in the closing chapters, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things 
will have passed away. And God is inviting us to live in hope of this future. See, some traditions regarding the end times seem to foster fear rather than hope. In popular culture, I think the reality is that the idea of the rapture, for example, has ironically fostered fear about missing out more than it seems to have cultivated hope. Paul wants the Thessalonians, God wants us to be encouraged to live in hope by being clear and confident about what we are looking forward to. God doesn't want us to be fixated on how the puzzle pieces fit together or to wonder what part of the puzzle might relate to our present circumstances. He wants us to dwell on these beautiful pictures that he has painted for us in his word and to live in hope, even in the face of death. He wants us to encourage each other in this hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this glorious picture, this reality that we live in hope of. We thank you for the promise of life, even in the face of death. We pray that you would help us to trust in this promise, to cling on to it when we most need it, and to encourage each other in this hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.